Welcome to Museum Kind. As you can guess, today we are talking paleontology and how that connects to museums and the museum world. I am Madeline. I am Sarah. I am Maddie. We are so happy to have you here today. Ladies, what are we drinking? What's the tea? Ooh, I'm switching it up today. It is a hot day. I'm having iced hibiscus tea from the wonderful ministry of, wait, no, the Republic of Tea. <laughs> thought you were going to yes. say the Ministry of Magic. <laughs> I almost said the Ministry of Tea. Uh, yes, but hibiscus iced tea. Delicious. Love it. Yes. Lovely. I have also a similar tea. It is a cherry blossom Harney and Sons tea. Oh, what a beautiful uh, a, box. Aren't these beautiful? Harney yes. and Sons is also like real good flavor. Yeah. Uh, a delicate green tea with springtime cherries. Another thank you gift tea. The mm. classiest thank you gift. Tea, the, the gift that just keeps on giving. It does. Right. It does, doesn't it? It's payment. <laughs> any day right Mm -hmm. well today i'm having a iced mango tango from a local coffee shop and it is an iced matcha with mango and honey and it's quite refreshing yeah Ooh, that sounds they're dancing together in that icy cup Mm. oh Mm -mm. yeah Yeah, that's the tango Uh, tango. that looks good yeah it looks delicious yeah it's pretty tasty well dinosaurs so um for ours i like sarah first thought fossils mary for those who don't know mary annie she is the she and she sells (laughs) by down by the seashore oh i love it Um, so Mary Annine in 1811, as an 11 year old, discovered an ichthyosaurus in her home region, um, in Lyme. She spent basically her whole life as a small child and into adulthood and until she died walking along the cliff shores of Lyme. You may know it from persuasion, uh, that area (laughs) and persuasion films, uh, fondly, very fondly. (laughs) I don't know what a persuasion film is. I'm sorry. What do no, you mean by um, that? Sorry, Jane Austen's Jane persuasion. Austen. Oh, oh, that's right. Yes. That's and honestly, mistake. I yeah. mean, we could we could get into a whole discussion of Oh, I know you two gals could persuasion. For sure. Oh yeah. my yeah. god, can we do a Jane Austen episode? I don't know how that would connect back to museums, but I'm, <laughs> I'll sure, try. I'm sure there's a way. There's a way <laughs> for sure. Um, I know that there's like a folly on land in um, Mansfield Park um and like I feel like follies and architectural historic preservation mm-hmm. <laughs> oh and there's like this scene in Pride and Prejudice where she's walking in the hall of um either portraits or um sculptures depending on the yeah adaptation. we'll get there and I know yeah yeah going to private collections that was like an activity people did so yeah there's yeah there's definitely some material there <laughs> There is. Well, at a similar time that Jane Austen was, uh, I think the same time that Sense of Sensibility came out is the same year that Mary Anning discovered the ichthyosaurus. And she discovered um, a lot of fossils throughout her life. She stole them in a store locally, but because she had neither wealth nor status and was a woman, others um, often claimed credit for her discoveries, just kind of by way of like she'd sell to them and they'd sell to museums. So they'd kind of get the name. I think a couple of species were named after just two that were named after her. Um, And she, so she had like some kind of famous renown at the time, but wasn't really appreciated or didn't really get any like money (laughs) or credit in the time that would have been valuable to her. Um, And now it's a little bit different. There was a recent movie with her um, starring Kate Winslet. Uh, There's this book. The Fossil Hunter by Shelley Emling, L. Emling, and there's a lot of podcasts. There's even a modern day paleontologist with an Instagram handle, handle Mary Annie's Revenge. So she does get Ooh. credit today. 
Sarah, was there anything that you found out about? Well, no. Well, uh, yes. So she gets credited with being the first person to uh, give, uh, oh my gosh, uh, cop copper lights. Oh gosh, I got to pull it up. Basically uh, dinosaur poop. She was the first one to see Merritt and looking at it and like, you know, gaining uh, information from it. And so, but the word for fossilized dinosaur poop escapes me at the moment. Um, but yes, she gets credit for that. So dino poop, thank you very much. And mm -hmm. um, also like, yeah, she, she couldn't go to basically the meeting of the minds with the men to talk about the discoveries. So that's also part of why she didn't get the credit because she just couldn't go to oh, right like so lame not, yeah cl classic I, I was actually went on a tangent about the fossilized dinosaur poop <laughs> <So>. <laughs> I actually grew up with one of those in my home and there is a scene in the movie Ammonite that I mentioned um where someone discovers whatever that is and I think oh, she does it is a coprolite coprolite yes fossilized feces that's the official professional way to say it mm. but we all know what we're talking about here <laughs> dinosaur poop so you had one i did i don't know where We're... it is now it wasn't it wasn't my it was it was in the house i grew up with and in and i think there was also a dinosaur fossil as well um i want to say a piece of vertebrae but i don't mm. know wow yeah yeah and um that's kind of that was kind of the, the summary of Marianne's life like not being mm -hmm. able to go into those halls there is a scene in the movie where you see her visiting the ichthyosaurus at the british museum um and some of the preparation work mm -hmm. that she did as well so that was cool and um but for today i okay i'm in the middle i didn't finish it <laughs> <laughs> i'm reading the monster's bones the discovery of t-rex and how it shook our world by david k randall mm. oh my kind of focus was on a couple of interesting fossil hunters you might call them fossil hunters fossilists we think of mary annie definitely as a fossil hunter um but very localized. Uh, so the hero of our story is Barnum Brown. He's born in Kansas. He is a strong farm boy. He's basically our Ted Lasso because he just goes into every situation and everybody loves him. Although he <laughs> he does actually know a lot about fossil hunting. <laughs> He's not super <laughs> studious, um, but he does what he can to get by. And he ends up securing a position at the American Museum of Natural History in New York and worked there for 40 years. And he... Um, is actually the person who was behind the dig where they found the first, what he called an un the undetermined bones of a large carnivorous dinosaur, um, which turned out to be Tyrannosaurus rex, which was, yes, <laughs> which was very important, um, which I will get to. So the term dinosaur came about in 1842, so obviously, like they have been finding fossils. We mentioned Mary Anning found her ichthyosaurus in 1811. So they already had like the naming scheme. They were finding like we're finding these things in Europe, and they are kind of unidentified. Um, Richard Owen is the one who coined the term. He was a professor of anatomy. I think he's one of the ones. There's several guys in this book who like try to become doctors, and they do their first. Um, you know, they uh, what do you call it? <laughs> autopsy and they can't <laughs> hack it so they're like i'm gonna go to things that are already dead any <laughs> <Bloody> bones <laughs> uh especially fossilized bones and so dinos means terrible or fearfully great and it kind of has a concept of like inconceivableness <laughs> and um the sore is just lizard so um very often like with the exception of mary annie and some other scientists these things were found by accident, especially in the U.S., like by farmers or miners um, mm -hmm. as time went on. And then I'm just going to say his last name because John <laughs> Leopold Nicholas Frederick Covert, um, in 1796, he sort of floated the concept of extinction. Um, and he was a fossilist with a large collection of prehistoric life at the Natural National Museum of Natural History. But even then, like, you know, it was sometime before they connected extinction with um, obviously evolution and fully understanding that that took them 
um, like 70 more years uh, of thought. So these things are kind of going along so that by the time it's the late 1800s and Barnum Brown is digging, they have a much better understanding of like, we're looking for things that are dead. We're understanding that there was an extinction that happened, but it did take them a while to get there from just like finding these things in the ground. Um, and so my favorite part of this uh, was the Bone Wars, which was a feud between two scientists who were once friends, uh, Othniel Charles Marsh and Edward Drinker Coop. And Marsh sounds like he sucks. Everybody hates him. <laughs> He's very disagreeable in Austin terms. Uh, but he, his uncle was George Peabody, known for the Peabody Museum. Um, at, is it? It's with Yale, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yes. So luckily for this disagreeable man, he had a very famous wealthy uncle. And so he led some of the first expeditions in South Dakota, Nebraska, Utah, and Wyoming. And like I said, he and Coop were friends for a while, but then they split and they were complete rivals out on these expeditions. It over 20 years, they did discover and name over 120 dinosaurs. Uh, But during that time, they were more concerned with who was finding more dinosaurs, who was writing more papers. So they paid off informants. They sent spies into each other's camps. They spread lies about each other. They dynamited quarries rather than having fossils like fall into the other's hands. Marsh snuck into his camp and like scattered a bunch of random dinosaur bones and other bones to just like ruin the context of their dig. Um, They publicly wished the other was dead. They said things about each other in the press like that. Um, Their assistants, uh, this was a quote, their assistants took on the conflict as their own like sin passed on through generations. They threw rocks at each other. These, wow. these men are just, you know, imagine what they could achieve together. Right, exactly. <laughs> the rivalries. No, yeah. yeah. Right. And like how much information was lost potentially mm-hmm. in like their feuding and um, destroying context. Because that's mm-hmm. everything on archaeological or paleontology days. Yeah. The rocks are important. <laughs> yeah, where everything is in relation to everything else. Very important, but they ruined it. And then Marshall just put his name on his assistant's papers. Um, but they did also, you know, discover Stegosaurus and Brontosaurus. And um, that was when Fossil Hunter kind of emerged as a profession. But the most important part of the story, like the like the through thread, that's not right, whatever. A through line. <laughs> through line thank you so much yeah, you can thread that through you can through that thread, line i mean lines yeah. threads they're all the same yeah <laughs> you threaded it with the transcontinental railroad much oh spirit stallion of the cimarron this story is all about the railroad because <laughs> <laughs> they were both obviously from like eastern institutions mm-hmm. so then they're like okay we got to go west which is where you would find um, Barnum Brown, who, by the way, was named after P.T. Barnum. I had a feeling there was a connection. Mm-hmm. Of course, yeah. he pops up everywhere. His parents just, like, couldn't come up with a name for him. And his um, older brother, who was, like, still pretty young at the time, Frank, had been to the circus. And so he was like, what about Barnum? And then that stuck. And P.P. Barnum, I'm not going to say um, he was an arsonist, but like where there's smoke, there's P.T. Barnum. A lot of his stuff burned down, including the first uh, named. It wasn't the first museum in America, but the first American museum mm-hmm. which was very much oddities. So then that burned down. Maybe arson from P.T. Barnum. <laughs> Who knows? Just spread that. Um, spread that lie. Um, (laughs) the American Museum of Natural History opened in New York and that was supposed to be very different. It wasn't supposed to be oddities. It was supposed to be like a center of science and like a very high brow, but they also wanted everybody to be able to visit. It was on the opposite side of the park as the Met. And that was kind of like, it was supposed to be of that caliber, but people sort of thought of natural history as like, especially fossils, like this sort of thing that would maybe be like an oddities in a museum like Barnum's American Museum. So they're kind of 
vying for this status of like we're we're looking for these dinosaurs out west we're collecting them but we want them to be presented in this way that is high status holds up scientific rigor but also shows how important that scientific rigor is to like the common people and have them be interested in it kind of stuff that we're museums are still struggling with today So like the first time dinosaurs were put into the public consciousness was when Benjamin Waterhouse Hawkins made life-size models that were commissioned by Prince Albert um, for the Crystal Palace. And that happened, that opened in 1854. And that was like the first time, even though they were still figuring out exactly like how they would stand and everything, it wasn't until they found like certain sacrums and certain bones where they understood more about like, okay hey they walked on land (laughs) some of them were on two legs and but he you know they were a version of dinosaurs and they were definitely something different than anyone had seen he was commissioned to make them for central park but then there was this whole thing with like corrupt politicians read like run by william boss tweed and they kind of like squashed it it was a whole that's a whole other story um but Uh, That was sort of like the public had an idea, but the American Museum of Natural History wanted to like really highlight paleontology. And they thought the only way to do that was to have a big, fully articulated um, fossil. And um, at the time, the paleontology department was run by Henry Fairfield Osborne, the nephew of J.P. Morgan. Mm. And he he's like a science enthusiast. I'd say rather than an actual scientist who just sort of walked in places and was like, I'm the supervisor now. I'm the director now. (laughs) Very classic. Um, Mm -hmm. mm -hmm, The producer. Yes. He just walks in and is like, this is my thing. I do want to say that I have a personal vendetta. Yeah, it is personal. Historical vendetta (laughs) against Osborne. Because he's one of the people who um, made happen uh, putting Atabanga, who was a Congolese man about 20 Mm. years old, into the Bronx Zoo Mm. on display at the Primate House. For more information on that, read Spectacle, The Astonishing Life of Atabanga by Pamela Newkirk. I'm still mad about it. Yeah, Good, stay mad. Stay mad. Yeah, that is deeply... Oh, okay. Yeah. Deeply mm-hmm. troubling. So forget you, Henry Osborne. Mm-hmm. Um, but he did end up hiring um our friend Barnum Brown. And um Barnum is like very young and he's so enthusiastic and he's like taking these this crappy payment and he's like jumping at the opportunity even when it's not fully promised to him. There's a part that I find the most relatable thing I've ever read where he sends a letter to Osborne, like, I just, I can't find any dinosaurs um, in this area. And I think I overpromised and I'm so sorry. And I just, I really want some guidance. And he just, he really wanted guidance. And then two days later, he's like, never mind, I got this. It's fine. I have a plan. And his plan was just to look harder. <laughs> That's my plan every day. I don't know what I'm going to do. But I'm just like, keep doing it. Because uh, what else yeah. are you going to do? Yeah. What else? Yeah, it's just like, never mind, I'm confident now. <laughs> After I told you I was extremely vulnerable and I needed help and I just needed you to tell me what to do, now I'm good. I'm confident. <laughs> so this is when the railroad comes in. Um, in 1899, the Union Pacific Railroad offered free passage for a limited time to amateur prospecting teams from over 200 colleges and universities, which opened up the field this was called the wyoming fossil fields expedition and so finally it wasn't just like representatives from a couple of eastern museums maybe one from the field museum it was a whole bunch of people now they didn't have the same resources some of them just got too hot and hungry and had to go and they were still figuring out like how do we actually find dinosaurs like how do you find a spot like how do you mentally overlay like our current time period with with what might have been theirs and know like where to look, what textures to start with, and like all of that. But eventually, um, Barnum Brown figured it out enough that in Montana, he was able to find the bones of the first T-Rex. That wasn't the end of the story. He still had to like find other pieces. Um, and there was more to it than that. But th- that's sort of the basis of 
the fossil hunters in the West as it was, you know, becoming a whole different West anyway, and a whole different field of paleontology. And those were some of the, uh, the big names Mm -hmm. doing it. Doing it. Wow. Yeah. The, the foundation of paleontology. Yes. And it was, I mean, people, uh, you know, for a, ever have been finding pieces and like oh what's up with that when Lewis Mm -hmm. and Clark were sent out um Thomas Jefferson was like you should look for mastodons because they still didn't understand then extinction so he's like maybe they went west like I understand they're not here now but we found their bones so it was a long series of people like kind of just getting parts and pieces um of both evolution extinction and then like actually the taxonomy of dinosaurs because they're also seeing like bird-like qualities and actually finding prehistoric birds and trying to figure out you know if they're dinosaurs yeah. and that sort of thing so this was all going on um as some of them were just straight up fighting and throwing rocks at each other <laughs> mm-hmm. and there's many people who will come up who's like he was one of marsh's assistants until they fell out because he asked marsh to pay him and he got mad and then he just went off and became a salesman Mm. <laughs> there's a lot a lot of very um modern day stories in it yeah. of people struggling with their desire to be paleontologists and be in this world but then also like the directors are getting in there f- because of who their uncle is mm-hmm. and and then it's being run by people who are maybe alienating assistants or there's rivalries. Even there would be some people who would get along and they'd be their protege, but then they'd go, they'd become their rival in fossil hunting and they're all competing for the same funds. So uh, it started, it's been going on for a long time. Yeah. And much ego. Yes. (laughs) Ego and drama, like more drama than you'd expect yeah and since like a dinosaur with fossils and since like a fossil or a new species name like you find it you name it yeah like trying to see where some of that comes from and then they're like oh well like mine's bigger oh yeah you found a really big one but you messed up the articulation you put the head where the tail should be Mm. oh no (laughs) yeah Mm yeah oh. and some of that was also the work of preparators and like them just getting like when they got the um when the museum actually got the t-rex initially it was just like a bunch of wrapped bones they he's like i know this is something carnivorous i know it's a dinosaur i don't know what it is you know so they're in the lab very slowly having to figure out exactly what it is and they're like what are these little arms what's up with that <laughs> yeah <laughs> Yeah, I found that in my story, too, that I guess my presumption, not knowing a lot about paleontology, was that when you're digging it, like, you understand what you're digging up, but there's so much research that happens after you actually have the bones, so... Mm -hmm. Yeah, Even knowing, like, if you find a piece and you're like, which way is it going? Mm -hmm. That's more for the paleontologist and the preparator, but... yeah. Yeah, I'm kind of like, where do I invest my time and trying to figure out like what direction it's going? And if you don't know where it's connected to, that makes the digging harder. Right. Something I read about fossil preparation was like, basically like, don't get cocky that you think you know where these bones are going. You have to like eliminate uh, the matrix uh, layer by layer evenly and not make assumptions about like, well, I, I could tell the bones go this way, you know? Yeah. Uh, yeah it's like no you have no idea what happened right (laughs) yeah because the bones can be like quite separated over time Mm -hmm. yeah yeah and I wonder even like if you're like I know what a femur looks like or it's a species you even know Mm -hmm. like there could be I don't know some sort of like calcification or something Mm -hmm. like yeah you don't want to make assumptions like any job don't make assumptions (laughs) great lesson for today yeah true 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 yeah oh well um I guess I started my search with of course doing some (laughs) self-searching as they also should just like a paleontologist always reflection is healthy so but maybe not too much like 
it can get unhealthy too. Yeah. Anyway, <laughs> um, I don't know. Did you guys feel like when you were kids that dinos were having like a heyday moment? I just feel like there was so much dino material everywhere. And that was probably because of Jurassic Park. Mm -hmm. There was yeah. also time. Yeah. It was dino crazy. It yeah. was. Oh, dinosaurs. The do they want to watch dinosaurs? Yes, the weird puppetry show <laughs> yeah. that was on. Yeah, I used and, to watch and that. examined existential questions. Yes, <laughs> yes. <laughs> I mean, yeah, I I don't know what it was about that, but I have a theory, and okay. so oh. that's where I'm going. <clears throat> so it's not just that they were rad. Yeah. <laughs> That's part of it for sure. Right. Like just like how skateboard, like it's at the same time that skateboarding was cool it, and energy drinks. Yes. They all go together so well. Don't they? Yeah. But I want to hear your theories. Okay. <laughs> so um, let me tell you my favorite museum story involving dinosaurs. This is the story of a dino named Sue. And it involves several parties. We have... Mm -hmm. Peter L. Larson, the president of Black Hills Institute, Sue Hendrickson, a field paleontologist, Mr. Maurice Williams, a landowner and part of the Sioux Nation, Assistant U.S. Attorney Kevin Schieffer, the Feds, the Field Museum, Disney World, and McDonald's, and of course, Sue the T-Rex, a.k.a specimen fmnhpr281 <laughs> or 2081 excuse me <laughs> yes so we began 67 million years ago in the late cretaceous period sue a well-established dino in their prime we'll skip forward a little bit <laughs> so um august 12th 1990 Yesterday, the we're recording on August 13th today, but oh. yesterday was the 33rd anniversary of wow. this discovery. So okay. I know it's like it's meant to be oh. <laughs> a group of paleontologists working for the private geological lab, the Black Hills Institute, are searching the land of Maurice Williams near Faith, South Dakota, with his permission. They discover a flat tire on their truck and they go into town. However, they leave behind their intern, Sue Hendrickson. And she begins to wander looking for fossils. Did they leave her behind intentionally or like, whoops, we forgot her? I think it was intentional. Like okay. they were probably just like, oh, this intern doesn't need to come with us. <laughs> I don't know. Okay. Okay. <laughs> but yeah, somehow she's left behind. And uh, so she heads to an area they have not searched yet and finds the bones of a large carnivorous dinosaur in a rock face. She obviously lets the crew know what she's found, and they pay Mr. Williams, the landowner, $5,000 to extract the bones. Black Hill Institute moves the bones, still in large pieces of rock and earth, to their lab in Hill City to study. So just a side note, this is the most significant fossil discovery at the time, but it was the largest and most complete set of bones found belonging to one creature. So it's a big deal and there's a lot of interest around this discovery. Um, and I should also mention because Sue Hendrickson found the dinosaur bones, they named this dinosaur after her, Sue. Did you guys hear about Sue when you were um, I, I don't know how old you were when this discovery happened, but I feel like Sue was definitely in my childhood. I feel like Sue was more on my radar later, like a lot oh, later. Oh, okay. Because like, correct me if I'm wrong, but Sue did like a tour across the United States, correct? She did, yeah. And I think that I saw her at the Natural History Museum in Gainesville. I could be totally okay. wrong, but I thought it was a big old deal. So, yeah, um, it probably was. Yeah, yeah, so that's when I feel like I heard of Okay. Sue. Yeah. All right. I probably 
heard about her when I was a teenager and went to Chicago. Um, saw her there. I don't know that I knew about her. I don't know. I might have. Like I kind like I knew before going into the museum that she was there, but I don't know what. Yeah. About it. Yeah. Okay. All right. Well, uh, flash forward to 1992 and this has the attention of the assistant u.s attorney i mentioned before kevin schieffer and he charges black hills institute with theft because they failed to obtain permissions to remove the fossil from a native american reservation remember i said maurice was part of the sioux nation and actually this was on a reservation so i believe that's considered federal lands is that right i believe so okay so they they got permission from the individual but they needed it from the reservation yeah and i'm sure there was like some confusion about property lines and what parts of land are what so land is complicated So the feds seize the bones of Sue as well as several other fossils from the lab. And I mentioned Peter Larson. He's the the lead and owner of the Black Hills Institute. So he's the one who paid Maurice Williams. And um, he turns out to be a somewhat sketchy dude. And that might be one of the reasons why there was such a high stakes custody battle over the remains of Sue. He was convicted of two felonies and misdemeanors related to trafficking fossils, which uh, I listened to another podcast, and that seems to be very common among the world of fossils. Not that it makes it okay, but like it happens a lot, as it does with antiquities and all kinds of other things. So fossils are not removed from those complications. So uh, Peter Larson, he served two years in federal prison. um, And in the paleontology field, he was considered controversial for selling fossils to private collectors. In general, um, it seems in the field, it's believed that fossils should remain within the public domain. So eventually in 1994, ownership of Sue is assigned back to Mr. Maurice Williams and Sotheby's is selected to auction Sue on his behalf. That brings us to the 1997 auction of Sue, which took a mere nine minutes and the field museum. Yeah, it does sound stressful. I think it's nine minutes and I feel like I read that there were nine parties who were trying to get it mm-hmm. to mm-hmm. um but the field Wait, why is this not a david fincher film? <laughs> <laughs> just the auction or what's the other guy that does like a lot of money financial movies i'll think of his name later but it seems like it could be a good drama for that they've mm-hmm. got to do this someday there's so much drama in this story oh. But uh, so the Field Museum, with the help from several donors, including McDonald's and Disney World, paid eight point three six million for the Tyrannosaurus Rex remains, and that small potatoes. Is that, now, yeah, just okay. small potatoes and cost of fossils now. Right. Yeah. yeah. I I think <laughs> today I want to say it was like thirty million for like the highest paid for dinosaur remains. Mm-hmm. Um, but at the time, this was this was big bucks, big deal. So now we can see Sue in all their glory at the Field Museum in the Griffin Halls of Evolving Planet. And Sue actually got a bit of a makeover in 2018 due to the discoveries the field scientists made during um, studies of the remains while she has been there. One of those is that the gastral bones that now make up the underbelly area uh, means that the T-Rex is bigger than we thought before. So it likely weighed 18 to 20,000 pounds. 
Yeah. And so um, the way Sue was before, like I maybe listeners can picture this, but her rib cage kind of came around like a human rib cage, but then Mm -hmm. they realized these bones that were part of the original matrix where they found Sue were actually going under her belly too. So it's almost like she has like a quadruple rib cage, but, um, and I'm calling her, she, they actually referred to they, um, Sue is a, a them because they can't determine the sex. <laughs> <laughs> they, them. Okay. Yes. Yeah. So, uh, pretty cool. And Sue made a big impact on my life. I remember, um, when the traveling exhibit was happening, uh, they, they made copies of her. So Sue traveled everywhere. And, uh, I know my mom, like, she was like, we have to go see Sue. <laughs> so <laughs> I, I don't actually remember seeing her, but I remember seeing posters. And then I did visit the field museum in later years and saw her. So that was exciting, but this was a pretty high stakes acquisition and the work of the field museum, what they've done to share Sue, you can clearly see that they've played a role in shaping a piece of our, our culture. And I was trying to connect the discovery with Jurassic park. So I of course watched Jurassic park before we recorded this episode. And so some of the similarities I noticed were Laura Dern's character, Dr. Ellie Sattler. She is visually similar to the scientist who discovered the fossil, Sue Hendrickson. I have a picture I can pull up. I assume of Sue Hendrickson, because in my mind, I can see Laura Dern. Yeah. (laughs) In that, in the double denim, and then... Yeah, those cargo shorts, a little neckerchief. So mm-hmm. here we have Laura, Laura Dern. Yeah, I- and then this is Sue Hendrickson next. Oh to yeah, her yeah. Her discovery. Wow. Yeah. The picture of, of her with the discovery. I'm like, sure, if you say so, because that just looks like the side of a big ass rock to me. But yeah, you know, I know. Good but eyes. I'm guessing yeah. this is the vertebrae of the muse the museum the dinosaur <laughs> the backbone of the, the museum backbone, yeah the, but yeah, yeah it doesn't look like boom like you yeah, if you yeah. a thing to look like you wouldn't yeah they really paleontologists they they're so smart. their eyes are different yeah. they are <laughs> seeing through rocks with like laser eyes <laughs> <laughs> yeah <laughs> Oh, um, another thing I noticed, uh, the movie seems to grapple with the morals of commercialization. And Mm -hmm. I think there's threads connecting back to the story of Sue, like the federal prosecution of Larson and uh, the Black Hills Institute, trying to keep fossils in the public space rather than using privatization to distribute and share knowledge. Um, And the fact that fast food and theme parks are involved in both of these stories, (laughs) Uh because I'm sure Disney played a huge role in the traveling exhibition of Sue and like the look of it, the marketing. Um, I think they were actually the first to receive a copy of Sue. Uh That was part of their agreement when they donated funds to Acquisition Sue. Wow. Yes. What did McDonald's get out of it? I'm not sure. I, you know what? I bet it was a happy meal. We should find this out like some kind of happy meal related thing. Toy. I'm looking into it. Um, And then finally, I feel that the silhouetted T Rex skull is such an iconic image and it had to have inspired the Jurassic Park skull icon but I don't think my timeline necessarily lines up on this because Sue was discovered in 1990 the book by Michael Crichton was released in 1990 and I think that original book cover had like a silhouetted 
skeleton on it. Um, but the movie was released in 1993. And I just, I feel like imagery wise, all of these things kind of line up. Yeah. It, it all adds up. It does. <laughs> well, I wasn't even planning on talking about this, but you kind of talking about Sue reminds me of the big John, which is the, uh, a newer hot fossil uh, out in the world. Mm-hmm. Uh, big John was a triceratops and it was a 60 in 2014. It was found um, by a, a geological uh, group, but it is 60% of its actual full body, 60%. Mm-hmm. And when it went to auction in 2021, it reached 7.7 million, which is the most ever paid for a Triceratops. And it was bought by a private collector. And the the guy that found it, the paleontologist said he was disappointed that it was bought by a private collector, not a museum. And that he really hoped the private collector puts it on display. And so I live on the West Coast and the Glaciers Children Museum in Tampa actually just got Big John and they just opened it in May. And um, it's going to be there for three years. So it is getting a run because the guy that bought it was from Tampa. Like, oh, nice. From Tampa. Yeah. But um, I thought that was uh, interesting, you know, just. Like- yeah. Um, I will say, like, obviously, Sue Hendrickson, she was a part of the story throughout. And she was actually at the auction. And she expressed her disappointment that none of the people from Black Hills Institute would be able to continue studying. Mm-hmm. And uh, I want to say there was someone else who was just like, I just don't like how McDonald's and Disney are benefiting so much off of this. So it really it does seem to be a thing that these dino bones need to be available to the public. Yeah, and I and there is a big trend for private people to buy because I I'm I'm pulling this out of my nowhere, but it's either Nick Cage or Leonardo DiCaprio that have a Tyrannosaurus Rex skull fossil that they bought off of the market. I would believe either. Yes. Yeah, 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 I yeah, mean, yeah. It's kind of like a play to you know play decor for the uber wealthy of you know check out my dinosaur skull you know. Um, and I, I did look it up and I think McDonald's like that was the original plan was that they would get cast of Sue to do a world tour at McDonald's. At McDonald's? In the playground area? <laughs> I don't know if it would just be parts or smaller uh-huh. scale, but I think they had a plan. I don't know if it actually panned out that way that they okay. were able to utilize the Sue marketing. I did oh. find... Like some pictures of like a Happy Meals box that had like dinosaur activities on it, but I don't, I can't find what year. Okay. Um, uh, maybe it was at Animal Kingdom. Uh, I don't know if there's like a synergy. <laughs> I think there there was at a time there was McDonald's existed in the parks. Okay, that would explain a lot. So, of that. Yeah. Uh, yes. Yes. It's all connected. It is all connected. <laughs> Synergy. Yeah. Well, that's interesting. You guys got historical going on, and I went in a completely different angle. I was just thinking about like, what is it? What would it be like to be like a collections manager that works with you know dinosaur fossils? Which I would be deeply interested, but I to do. But I think that. I've been so art focused. I don't know if I could pivot at this point, but yeah, if anybody is you can looking, pivot. I want to pivot because it I think sounds, it sounds really cool. cool. Yeah. Like, I was that kid that when you go to a museum gift shop, I would buy that block of a thing that has like, they're like chip away at it and get the fossil out. You know, it's not like really a fossil. It's like a thing, but you just like chip away at it. I, I love that kind of stuff. So I, I got interested in what are fossil preparation, like tools and like, what are you, what are you doing? And I guess I knew that you used a lot of like tools to get stuff out, but I learned, I think a lot. So um, we've used the word matrix quite a bit, but I honestly didn't, I had to look up the word when I was reading about the paleontology. So matrix is the rock or sediment of which a fossil is embedded. So uh, that's, it's an official terminology. So when we say like the matrix, it's uh, it's in that uh, you got to chip away at the matrix. And then, I mean, this is, 
I don't know, for all our dino heads out there, maybe this is just dumb, dumb, simple stuff. But a fossil is not only just the preserved remains, impression, or a trace of any once living thing from a past geological age, but um, it can all, like the process of fossilization could be so different for each type of like specimen that you have. So one is like, Per, per mineralization, you got your casts and molds, you've got your replacement and crystallization, your adpression, carbonization, and bioimmuneration. Am I going to tell you what all those are? No, I'm not. But I just say that to say that because the process of fossilization is so different, the technique you take to prepare the fossils for display or research could be so different, which mm -hmm. I thought was interesting, right? So, I only know one of those, Sarah, so I'm very impressed. Hey, great. I love it. So I don't know I, any of them, so yeah, they sound very complicated. Yes, yeah, <laughs> you know, but so the American Museum of Natural History has this very cool paleontology portal that's basically like, do you want to know what we do and how we do it? Here we go. And I was just like, loving it. Okay. So, um, also I work at an art museum. We have preparators. I love the idea that they're still called preparators at, at natural history museum. So for fossil preparators is like a thing, but the preparation is the task that includes excavating, revealing, conserving, and replicating the remains or trace organisms. And it's basically, it's a part of the science of paleontology and museum exhibition and preservation. So it's okay. like where it all comes together. So, so, but preparators like in the art museum world and the paleontology or natural history, they have a different skill set, right? They have a different like skill set, but there's also an interesting amount of crossover, such as a small thing I noticed that I was looking at a vendor list for like tools and supplies for like paleontology. because. So, I actually spent a lot of time on an independent vendor's website because I was like, this is cool. <laughs> but they also buy from like Gaylord and Talus. Ooh. And like, like we have this overlapping of uh, big vendors that we <laughs> use. And then of course, then they have weirdo specialty ones. Like they buy like dental uh, tools and stuff like that. But it's just, yeah, totally different skill set, but same almost like mentality about being careful about what you do. And the fact that a lot of what they need to do also needs to be reversible, such as like a conservation, depending on mm -hmm. the types of glues they use for consolidation and stuff. So yeah, there um, sounds like a conservation technician element to their yes, job. Definitely. Yeah, for sure. And so it's like, I'm talking about once those fossils are already out of the ground and they've arrived at the museum. So like when you're in the ground, they wrap it up in what's called a field jacket, which is the fossils that are still embedded in the matrix. And then they're basically kind of like wrapped in plaster parachutes to kind of just create this big old bundle. And then that gets shipped to the museum laboratories. Uh, and I, I read that you know, ideally your paleontology like laboratory at the museum would be set up in what they call like a black space, a gray space and a white space. Like your black space is like your super dirty space like that. Mm. That thing just came in from the ground. You're going to be kicking up dirt and mud and like grossness. And then, then once you've kind of gotten the jacket off and things, you move to the gray space, which is the space where you're being uh, very precise and specific about what you're taking off and how you're doing it. And then the white spaces for your research, your, your clerical, you know, just work that you do, um, and related to it. So I thought that was interesting because a lot yeah. of us have like maybe an incoming receiving room, a preparation room. I mean, I don't at my place, but it would be interesting to apply those to our spaces. I mean, I could see mm -hmm. how that would be yes. beneficial. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and so, and then also like the degree of which a fossil is prepared, right? So it's like, it's dependent on the goal for the paleontologist for the specimen. So it's like, are you, are you cleaning this up for research or for intentional display? Essentially, you could take all the matrix off and have a, you know, put an armature together and have a clear fossil that's just very skeleton-like, or you could leave it embedded in the matrix and only reveal like the top half. So you can see the position that it was like in, in the, the matrix of the ground still, which I thought was interesting. Just thinking about the approach of initially when it even gets into the lab, like how you decide, like what's your end goal here, which... I kind of think like for us, we have that crossover with our exhibits. Like, what's the end goal? What are we trying to do here? You know, uh, and that could change uh, your vibe. Really, yeah, that sounds almost uh, like a curatorial decision. Like decision, yeah. Mm -hmm. Like the paleontologist makes that decision. Yeah, like oh. so. I thought that was pretty cool, right? So 
I don't know. I didn't think about it that way. I was just like, oh, it's this way for a reason, but it's that way maybe intentionally so that you're grasping the conflict, the concept of the the site or something like that. Mm -hmm. And so I really went down the rabbit hole for the preparation techniques, which is mechanical, chemical, and then non-invasive. And what really just got me going was this mechanical concept of an air scribe. Have you guys heard of an air scribe? I think I have heard of it, but I, you'll have to remind me what it does. Well, (laughs) it is the number one tool in fossil preparation. It's a compressed air driven stylus or a needle that repeatedly hit Mm -hmm. the rock many thousands of times per minute, which helps remove the matrix of your fossil. And so I went on this website called Zoic as in like, you know, Mesozoic, Cenozoic, you know, just called Zoic. Uh, we're not getting paid here by Zoic for this shout out, but their website is very inform- informative and about like the different levels of the air scribes that you would use and the conditions of which you would use it and how big is the stylus and how, how much, you know, beats per minute are you doing? And then are you going to, what, what's the tip of your stylist? Is it carbon? Is it iron? Like just knowing all those things, that's just the air scribe. That's just like big time getting in there. But then you also do grinding, like a lot of grinding, which is basically uh, think about like a Dremel tool that you might have. You're going to you're going to use something similar to that. Uh, those can have diamond bits or um, even little tiny dental bits you'll put on your little grinders and start wearing away a very thin layer. That was interesting. And then there's like a whole world of like uh maintaining your tools like a chef needs to maintain their knives you've got to grind them and things like Love that it. um there's also points which are just basically little needles that are for micro prep in the final stages of the large specimen um they they're made from either steel drill blanks or carbonite rods so it's just like you gotta know all this you gotta know your tools and the right tool for the the, the job and i was kind of like this is what i should have done with my life because i think this sounds very great right? There's like, still time, buddy. There's still time. Well, and then the fossil preparation can take months, you know, just, mm-hmm. I'm just like, oh, that actually sounds pretty good. I mean, I'm sure out there, hey, I'd love to hear from a fossil preparator out there. So uh, <laughs> reach out to us, museumkindpod at gmail.com. Um, so and I know you can watch them at like the, in Denver. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Like they have a, I just, kind of flubbed over their name i'll find it <laughs> they yeah. have to watch their preparators work i think they a lot of preparation labs rely on a lot of volunteers yes i remember the natural history museum in gainesville when i did get to go to their um, storage area they had a dentist that just retired and came in every day dutifully and used his little tools to to clean it up and i was like that's very cool wow. um, so if you like getting in mouths maybe you like cleaning the fossils um there's also an air abrasive, which I thought was cool. So it's a micro air abrasive. Uh, it's for like the final cleaning. It uses an air pressure of a focused stream of fine particles through a small nozzle. So sodium bicarbonate powder is the most commonly remu- used and it's gentle on the specimen, but you can also use aluminum oxide powder where you, where you really need to cut the matrix. So I was just thinking about like just how hardcore you get with stuff and like how you could really go like a whoops, you know, like take something too far. Right. So I'm sure over time you grow that, like that intuition and then mechanical also includes the gluing and the consolidation. So, um, so you have to know all about your adhesives, when to use it, what not to use, always keeping in mind that it needs to be reversible, which was not something that they were doing back in the day. I saw a lot of lists that specifically said, do not use Elmer's glue, which I thought (laughs) would have been probably pretty basic. Like don't use this or like, don't use like two part epoxy bonds and stuff like that. Mm -hmm. But then there's just like this whole other crazy world of the chemical preparation, which is very, uh, uh, scientific maybe too much you know uh technical but like an acid treatment where uh you use it on matrix that are uh, mostly composed of limestone and so you dissolve the carbon dioxide and the calcium ions in the present of in the presence of acid or iron reduction because some specimens have brown crust and crystals formed on them from iron oxide and it obscures the detail of the specimen so you use it by cleaning away that crust by uh reducing ferric iron to the ferrous hydroxide right see like this just keeps going right you just got to know a lot about all these things but i was like that's cool and then um clay 
disaggregation, which is like, don't know much about that. And then uh, transfer preparation. And that's just like an old school technique that they still use today. It was developed in the 1950s is you transfer, like basically put one half of the fossil in a polyester resin, and then the embedded fossil is placed in a bath of formic acid where the acid slowly eats away at the matrix, revealing the fossil bone. And then you continue this process until only the bones remain supported by the resin. And so uh, this technique is, it says, particularly useful when it is uh, a necessity to maintain the relationship of the articulated parts after the matrix um, removal. And um, also there's something called peels, which basically uh, acids are used to dissolve the bone from the rock, leaving a clear mold from which a peel will be cast. So it's basically getting rid of all of it, but to keep the, the casted shape so you can recast the, the shape of what it is. So it's kind of like, depending on what it is, is it, are you doing bone? Are you doing shell? Are you, you know, just like you might use a different method, but I thought that was kind of interesting. I really want to get me a fossil and give me an air scribe and which weirdly you can, maybe it's not weirdly because the fossil world's different than the art world, but like on this tool vendor page, like Zoic, you can also buy fossils that are still partially embedded in matrix. So you can test out the different tools and how you do it. And I was like, hmm, I could buy their starter kit and a couple of fossils and really just live my dream, you know, if I invested. So you should do that. It, yeah. what's the price range on these uh these items these items can really range okay. from if you're going for a professional level or like amateur fossil just having a good time level yeah I, it looked like if you were getting like a pretty professional grade scribe it's probably gonna be like five or six hundred dollars but you can mm -hmm. get one for like 150 you know so okay still all in all but the that's just like the the tip of what um you need for your fossil preparation lab you need a bunch of other stuff so this is these are just your basic old tools and chemicals to get going um, mm -hmm. i think fossil preparation sounds pretty cool and we should all dabble a little bit maybe live our best life i will so, say living in florida they will not be dinosaur fossils if they're from here. Yeah. 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 For no. those who don't know, we were underwater, but we have so many megafauna. Um, yeah. We have plenty of fossils. Yes. Totally. Yeah. Well, yeah. yeah. So, Maddie, you've probably worked with some fossils in some of your work, right? Yeah. I have nothing. I was pretty hands off, but I knew people who worked in preparation labs. And, okay. And but I have had fossils under my care so i just treated them pretty normally with maintaining the environment keeping a clean space and that kind of thing but i didn't do anything more okay. than that but yeah we had um articulated skeletons and um teeth lots of teeth but it is pretty wild to think about like the history of the fossil collecting really only being like 1850s kind of it's like this hasn't been going on that long no y'all i know read something which uh was just a little line in one article and i don't remember the reference but that the ancient chinese considered fossils to be dragon bones i've seen a document. documentary about okay. yeah that's mm. cool you know i think that might have come up in my unicorn research ah, <laughs> yeah. yeah it's like mythical creatures and how they've they've come to the real world in some ways yeah. Yeah, there was kind of in this book a bit about like griffins and there was some preserved human Viking remain, I think Viking remains, and they you could tell that they had tattoos of griffins. And then also they would find like certain fossils that kind of resembled that and would sort of give credence to what was already on their mind. Same with dragons, like we have this concept and then we find these bones that are like, oh, this could be that. Totally. Well, I love dinosaurs. I do I too. Love fossils. <clears throat> yeah, I think we gotta. <laughs> we uh, there is several dinosaur options in our state, <laughs> mm -hmm. <laughs> so there's plenty to visit as well as yeah. other of fossils to engage with. Or you can watch Jurassic Park, or you can watch Ammonite. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I've heard about this Ammonite because I I listened to another podcast to prep for this episode, and they were going over. Um, 
paleontology case files. It's the podcast is called Wine and Crime. <laughs> it was pretty fun. I mean, these ladies, they basically drink wine and talk case files and they laugh was a lot. <laughs> How was Ammonite a crime? Oh, it wasn't. They were just reviewing paleontology in general and then they went over their case files and one of them was the, the Sioux. Well, it yeah. could be considered a crime, Maddie, that I heard some criticism about that movie that they basically completely made up the whole lesbian love story between those two women. Yeah, that's probably um, a crime against uh, against these ladies. Sources, yeah. yeah. <laughs> but in in the defense of that, the guy that made the movie apparently he was like, "Look, y'all have been putting a lot on the narratives of uh, straight and gay people forever. Like, uh, why can't I put a narrative? Like, why is it okay for you to fictionalize a man yeah. and a woman relationship, but I can't fictionalize this woman woman? Like, I don't know. It was it was an interesting take, and I was like, okay, okay, fair, fair. When did this movie come out? The Ammonite movie. I think 2020. I will say it's recent. Yeah. I listened to a history chicks episode before 2020 and they mentioned one of their sources had some speculation about this relationship. So he wasn't the, this director, whoever created it wasn't the first one to have some speculation, but it sounds like there's not really any primary source. um, Yeah. Support. They were just kind of like, it could happen, like this director. And it's like, and mm-hmm. I want to make a story. Yeah. But it wouldn't be um very solid. Now, would I recommend I'd say if you watched the Jane Eyre with Michael Fassbender and you were like, I love, yeah. If you're like into this cold, dark, miserable aesthetic. <laughs> but you would like it um with some fossils and <laughs> ladies, then that's what it is yeah it's oh. like a cold slow movie so i call it the jane Eyre aesthetic and i love that vibe that's oh, like what yeah. i want in my life <laughs> all right we uh, love it rate it out of five stars what are you giving this maddie Mm, I don't know. <laughs> that tells me right there that it's not at three to three stars, is it? Well, I was going to say, I think it could be three for somebody else who really connected to some of it. Um, like, I would probably give it like a 2.5 because it's not technically bad and the acting mm-hmm. isn't bad. Um, and some, and I probably enjoyed it more than I thought I would, especially for the slowness of it. Mm-hmm. And I liked mm-hmm. the museum stuff that I did get to see good performances. And, um, but my favorite movie is Jurassic Park. So my, um, yeah, my judgment, <laughs> mm-hmm. you know, take that with a grain of salt. Yeah. Uh, uh, does anyone else get emotional when they watch Jurassic Park? I cry um, every time. Okay, end, I almost cry every single time. When that T-Rex is doing his oh and the banner's coming down, I am overwhelmed with feelings and emotion and I usually cry. For me, every- it's when they first see the dinosaurs. See the dinosaurs. Yeah, oh, I'm like, never thought. oh my god. They, they were going to go their whole life studying them and never see them. Yeah. Oh. And then the brontosaurus. Oh my god, I know. Oh wow, I just get overwhelmed with the the T Rex and all of its, you know, uh, its glory, power. Yeah. Yeah. Oh god, such a good movie though. And And it just throws off that raptor. And I don't know about you guys, but I say things like uh 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 uh, like yeah. And when people at work are just like, "What?" I'm like, "That's Jurassic Park, y'all. Like you, you gotta know that." And I but, know you say clever girl a lot and hold oh, on to your butts. And- hold on to your butts. Is my, <laughs> thank you for reminding me that. That's right. Hold on to your butts is my favorite quote. Yeah. And thank he says you. it twice. They yeah. do. Uh, <laughs> oh, that movie is so good. Have you guys seen the the next two? I'm sure you have, but I haven't. Jurassic Park two and three. Two and three. Yeah. yeah. Yes, I've seen them many, many times. Should I should I give it a shot? I think they're stupid and fun, but know that they're going to be stupid and they're not going to be as good as number one, but you're still going to have a really good dino time. (laughs) I think so. 
I might even watch number two today. I own one, two, and three. That's right. Oh, Damn. wow. Okay. I have a pack. I have like a collector's pack. Yeah. Oh you can't. Gosh. Yeah. Oh, uh, yeah. You get more gold. Oh, you know what? I. There's a scene with the um the trailers that I really think is very like quintessential Jurassic Park. There are some scenes that I think of as being like, yeah, really significant, but they're in the second movie. Okay. Mm-hmm. The third one's a Alan. It's a fun time. Oh my gosh, it's crazy, <laughs> but they're fun to watch. I mean, uh, come on. I mean, if you've watched, you've seen the the Jurassic World. Yeah. Right? If you've I wasted your time watching that trash, you should go back and watch Jurassic Park two and three. Okay. I do agree. I think yeah. Jurassic World is trash, and whatever the last movie, what they did was just a complete insult to the entire. It was Jurassic name. We saw know? that in theaters together. <laughs> <laughs> yeah so bad it yeah. made me so angry can i tell you guys so i had um there was a volunteer um god bless him because he saw the movie the second the second jurassic world before me and he's like maddie there's gonna be a part that you're not gonna like and <laughs> and it was the part where they are like the brontosaurus is on the dock <gasps> oh, I so oh my angry. god it was so I cried. Yeah, they're trying to make you cry. And I yeah. the only reason I didn't cry is because I was so angry that they were yeah. trying to make me cry using a brontosaurus. And I had been warned by a friend. Mm-hmm. Yeah. God bless them. <laughs> because I was so enraged. I was like, yeah. how dare you? After that, I'm donezo with them. Yeah. How dare you? Like, it's trash. Yeah. Yeah. It's not fun trash. The other ones, um, like Jurassic Park 3, you're going to have a good time. You're going to okay. have a good time. Oh, perfect. I'm, I'm envious excited. that you get to watch them for the first time, you know? Mm-hmm. But I think I'm definitely going to watch them today. So that's great. Yeah. Yeah. All right, ladies, what is for dinner? Well. <laughs> okay. It's, it's together. So yeah. Oh. For that. So <laughs> I'm having a little dinner party. I saw a post on Instagram. I know. Sarah, you're having we're, a dinner party and I'm I not invited? You yeah, would totally be here if you were here. <laughs> you know that. Oh, so jealous. Okay. Yes. Yes. Okay. All right. So yeah, I saw a post on Instagram and it was just like, girls just want dinner parties. And it made me go, I want to have a dinner party. So um, I'm making some pasta primavera, which had no idea is not Italian at all. It's American. <laughs> Not surprised. Yeah. yeah. Um, and uh, some wine and some fruits and salads and that kind of thing. So, yeah. Oh, lovely. I'll be bringing a side, but I guess I should keep it a surprise. Ooh. I'm excited. Find out on the next episode. What did Maddie bring <laughs> to the dinner party? Uh, Visit our Instagram. Yeah. <laughs> <Maddie> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> um, uh, well, I'm going out to eat tonight with some of uh, my husband's friends so I guess that's fun, too. fun. So we're having a little dinner party but I ain't cooking which I'm what kind of food do you know don't know yet mm. I hope these people work this out so because you know what I don't feel like making all the decisions I always I like doing decisions. restaurant de- research exactly. it's not my favorite exactly. yeah I just want to show up and just enjoy myself so yeah yeah well tell us on the next episode all right <laughs> until then Stay Stay preserved! preserved.